we'd like a word. About creating a sense of place. And our guest today is Peter May. Welcome. Hi. I should say you're listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And I think uh, this is probably the most celebrated author we've had on so far. I, I don't know whether we've had one before. We've had famous people, but I think this is the person who's probably won the most awards of anyone we've had on before. You've certainly won a lot of awards and sold a lot of books. Tell us about some of the stuff you've won and written. Ooh, uh, well, Pages of them. Yeah, I've got, well, yeah. Well, I mean, I've written about 25 books now over all these years. 25 books. to make you spit. Well, yeah, but that's only, I mean, really, I didn't start it seriously till the mid-90s, because so, I had a career as a journalist, and uh, I worked... You're not making it better. <laughs> <laughs> worked in telly for 17 years as a screenwriter and producer. I'd, n- I'd never won it. Well, I won a, an award as a journalist when I was 21, Scotland's Young Journalist of the Year, but I hadn't won anything for my books um, until I went to France. And the very first thing I won, they, I, I got a French publisher for my China books. And um, I suddenly, they phoned me up one day and said, you've been shortlisted for this prize called uh, the Prix Intramuros, uh, which is literally the prize behind the walls. And it was a prize that was going to be decided by prisoners in penitentiaries in France, uh, which was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. Um, and I had to go to this book festival in Cognac, and part of what we had to do then was go and visit these prisons around the northwest of France and go and talk to the prisoners. This is a book tour with a difference. It certainly was. Uh, it's quite scary too, and uh, and depressing. I mean, prison visits are always depressing. Um, and then two days later, they announced the winner, and it was me. Whoa, big shock. Um, so that was the first prize that I won. Um, and then a few years after that, The Black House came out. It was first published in France, and it won an award called the the Prix Sésame, which is determined by around 3,500 readers in groups throughout France. Um, so, and, and that's they're picked from a, a kind of short list of 10 novels. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't have to be uh, written by French writers, but as long as they're published in French. And so it, it won that, and that kind of propelled me on to lots of other prizes in France. The weird thing about that was that I think, I think the book had been turned down by English publishers, hadn't it? And yet it won all these awards and it went on to be a massive seller. That's it's, right, yeah. It's well, it's, uh, well, yeah, it just shows you the, how fickle the publishing industry is. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was turned down by every publisher in Britain. It was my French publisher who finally, I mean, three years after I'd written it, uh, read it, loved it, bought World Rights and published it in, in first in French. And then sold it all around the world, and finally, finally, the Brits bought it, and it turned into a huge uh, bestseller in the UK. So, um, yeah, but I owe the, all that to my French publisher. A listener got in touch to say uh, she wanted to ask a question of you. What is the achievement or prize of which you're most proud? Oh, my goodness, the one of which I'm most proud. Um, it's, it's probably the, the pre-saison that I won for The Black House, mainly because that was my breakthrough book and that's that was the book uh, in which my career revolved and, and went from kind of penury to um, not exactly riches but to success. 
I mean, we've, we've had some people on like Graham Norton who's become famous in other ways. And, but in terms of writing, you're the person who's achieved what most people listening to our show who are wannabe writers have achieved. I mean, you've, you've, you're internationally best-selling. You know, you've done TV, you've, done, you've had some of your books turned into TV shows, and you're sort of earning a living as a writer and living where you want to live. That's, that's the dream for a lot of people. And, and when we say living where you want to live, this is between France and Spain. Yeah, that's right. Well, my permanent home's in France, and um, I spend some of the winter months in Spain, which is where I do my writing these mm. days. And yeah, it all sounds like, you know, the big dream and all the rest of it, but, I mean, it it, it didn't come easy. Um, I, you know, I quit television mid-90s with a certain amount of money saved up in the bank uh, with the intention of trying to make a living writing books, which is what I had always wanted to do. Um <laughs> But it was hard. Uh, you know, I started off writing the China s- series. Um, uh, my advances in those books were very small. My research costs were very high. So, you know, there's nearly half of it gone just on research. Um, never mind living, feeding myself, paying the, the utilities. And that's, I mean, really the books were just earning out no more. Um, so it, it, it wasn't easy. We um, sold up our house in Scotland and, and moved permanently to France. I'd had a base down there for some years. And um, the, the money from the sale of the house then went into the bank. And the interest, remember, those were the days when you actually could get some interest on your money. Uh, we, and when people got advances. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that supplemented our income. Um, and we also ran writing courses in France. And so but, but among the three things, you know, the, the interest from the savings, the, the writing courses and the advances in the books, that's how we were surviving. But, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy and, and, it, and it got harder and harder. And uh, when, when my publisher eventually um, drew curtains on the China series... And I wrote The Black House and it got rejected universally. I was in financial trouble because just after that came the financial crash. We lost literally a third of our savings overnight. Mm. Uh, The interest income vanished. Uh, So we were really on our uppers. Um, So, you know, we'd we'd hit rock bottom before bouncing back. I said it's the dream for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people think they're going to write that book. It's going to be a massive hit. And that's going to be it. They're set for life. And it really doesn't work that way, does it? I mean, we've, we've spoken to authors who are now internationally famous. And something like their 12th book was their breakthrough book. And, and before that, um, you know, they, they were still having to hold down a full-time job and write this stuff in the gaps between picking the kids up from school and, and coming to and from work and that sort of thing. It, it's... I mean, we're almost back to the writers starving in a garret sort of world again now. And you've got to be quite dedicated to stick to it and write these days in the hope that, you know, you'll have that success. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's something you, you do have to stick at. I mean, in the, in the very early days, I was writing while I was working as a journalist and I'd be on night shift and it would be quiet and I would just shut myself away in the office and, and be working on a book. Um, well, that, I was lucky because I had that kind of time uh, and obviously also working night shifts and things. I had time at home during the day so I could also write. Um, but, but it's, yeah, you have to stick at it. It's, it. Nothing in life comes easy, maybe for a very fortunate few. For most of us, it's, it's hard graft. But the, one, the one plus is that over all the years that I was working away and writing these books, I was effectively building up a, a, 
a huge backlist. Yeah. So that when the breakthrough book came, suddenly the backlist became very saleable, and all those books that I'd struggled to sell in the past suddenly became bestsellers. So that's a really important thing. I mean, if you look at, again international sellers, people like Dan Brown, when the Da Vinci Code became the breakthrough book, you know, suddenly all his previous catalogue, which had sold nothing or been rejected, suddenly came out of the blue and. Uh, I mean, when I got my not first, always a good well, not thing. Always, not always a good thing, maybe. But uh, but my my first book, the, the one that the first one that actually got a publisher interested, that was my thirteenth novel. That was my thirteenth book before I. And so I've still got twelve unpublished books sitting on the hard drive at home. You know, so Brian McGilloway, who was on We'd Like a Word, he was a teacher, a mm-hmm. secondary school teacher, and then he gave it up for a few years. His wife was going back to work, so he st- stood back from it to write more, and he found he wasn't really writing more. I mean, I suppose it was picking children up and from school and leaving them to school and all the different times. And he thought, I've, so I've stepped back from the job. I'm not necessarily having all that much time or getting much more done. So he's gone back to work as a teacher now and carrying on writing. Um, so it might not necessarily be having the time. I mean, I'm guilty of this too. You have time, you don't do anything. Fitting it in maybe and having the discipline is more effective. I think the the discipline is is the important thing, um, and I, I mean I think from that point of view I learned my discipline for writing, uh, working as a journalist, where you wrote fast, you're always writing to deadlines, um, it taught you economy of language, um, and you could never hang about waiting for the muse. You, I mean you just had to deliver it, um, and so I I've just carried that right. On through my writing, working as a screenwriter, and writing books. I, I when I'm actually writing a book, I write three thousand words a day. I get up at six in the morning, and however long it takes me to do these three thousand words is however long I'm sitting at my desk. And you're quite a stickler for that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And I think. And do you find that you need people swearing and shouting and throwing things around you when you're doing it to, you know, recreate that journalistic atmos? I used to, I, I used to like to have noise around me because because somehow having something to shut out helped helped you focus. But I can't stand it now. I don't. I don't even have music. I, I just like silence and I disappear into my books and, and it all happens in there. So it's when I'm writing, it's like I'm living the movie, if you like. I quite like what you said about working the night shift because I was a police officer in London for 30 mm-hmm. years and when I was working the mm-hmm. night shift, again, I wasn't at home, so I didn't have distractions there. And the night shift, after about two o'clock, it would get quiet. And if I was working in the control room, it was great because I was sitting in the control room and there's nothing going on. I think... I'll just type a few thousand words here. And, of course, in those days, we had the old green screen computers. And at the end of the day, you couldn't save it to a disk or anything because this this is the command and control system that books where all the police cars go. So you just bring up a a blank format page, type away, and then just print it out on the dot matrix printer and take it home with you. But at least you've done a thousand words, you know. But it was a way of getting work done because there was that that quiet and that peace and that absence of distractions I mean I could actually get on with it until of course an emergency call came in and then you had to go back to work but I'm just thinking of the horror that would ensue if the script for the Diabolical Club one of your books got sent out <laughs> to every car like or something yeah. like the, and then the chaos well, that would ensue just as a wolf walking yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things well so your latest book is A Silent Death mm. tell us a bit about that well it's set in the south of Spain where I have an apartment where I winter these days um, and having um, over the last eight years done most of my writing down there I would got to know the area well and figured it's about time I wrote about it um, and so that became the setting for the book but I wanted 
Uh, I wanted to cr create some unusual characters. The main character, the, the, the police officer, the kind of misfit Scottish cop who's just been kicked out of the Met um, and is working for the UK um, crime agency, uh, is sent down there to bring back a, a prisoner, a guy who's been on the run from the... Uh, the cops in the UK for some years and hiding out in Spain who's been captured. Um, and this guy is, uh, um, uh, I hope they're not listening, but uh, he's kind of very largely based on my two brothers-in-law, both of whom have IQs which are totally off the scale. This is the cop you're talking yes, about? Yes, the cop. And um, he, um, I mean, you, we all know people like that, people who are super bright and they have absolutely no social filter mm. to just say what comes into their heads they, they, regardless of what offence they might give or the hurt they might cause, not that they do it on purpose but they just don't seem to understand um, the way that we do and so I, you, you know, this is a guy who's, who's spent his career um, annoying his, his bosses and his co-workers um, to the point that you know nobody can stand him uh, including his wife now um, but he's just started the new job and he's been sent down to Spain and he's attached to this policewoman who um, is working in a pretty misogynistic world uh, which the police down there uh, really is like because um, policewomen are really only employed because the law demands that you have a policewoman to search female suspects. And so, you know, if, if, if that's the reason you're being employed, it doesn't exactly boost your self-esteem. So, And she has a, a marriage problem. She's got a young son with problems at school, and here she's confronted by this misfit Scots cop um, and uh, a guy, a, f a fugitive, who's since escaped custody and, um, and has sworn revenge on this uh, young policewoman because during a, a, an incident right at the start of the book, he has accidentally shot his girlfriend um, when confronted with this police officer, but blames the police officer. So, And he's, he's become fixated by it because he can't admit to himself that it was his fault. So um, the, these are the three principal characters, but there's a, there's a fourth character who's not a central character, but central to the story, and that's the aunt of the policewoman, um, a middle-aged lady called Anna, Who's, who's deaf and blind and uh, this was something that I had wanted to write about for some time ever since I'd become aware um, through a TV ad in fact uh, which was looking to raise money for a uh, charity for uh, deaf blind sufferers um, and I, you know I'd never thought about it never really um, you, you don't uh, I mean we all understand what it might mean to be blind or to be deaf but both uh, it's almost unthinkable. And there's a lot more. There's a lot more deaf-blind people around than you imagine as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just that we, we kind of don't see them because their their world is so internalised, and obviously it's not very easy for them to function within society. They're nearly always based in institutions or in the home, so we don't see so many of them. It's actually four hundred thousand worldwide. In the UK, it's about ten thousand. But we don't actually. I mean, no, nobody knows how accurate that figure is because uh, nobody's really collating that kind no. of information. I did a lot of research into it. Um, a lot of um, deaf-blind people uh, became that way because of a genetic uh, affliction called Usher syndrome, and uh, and and mostly they start off um, with both faculties, um, and it, and lose them over a period of time, usually through childhood into adolescence, and uh, in a way, it, it it must be worse to have had 
those senses and lose them than have to have been born without them because you would never have known anything different. Although your character Anna at one point you say that she's able to picture things around her room like shelves and cupboards and cups and things like that because she has seen them in the past so even though she can't see them now that helps in some way. Oh yeah, I mean obviously because she has her mind's eye and she, she, because of her sighted experience uh, is able to make pictures in her imagination of, of the world around her. But but what she is, in fact, she's a prisoner of her own body. I mean, she's living in darkness and in silence. Um, and while other senses may become slightly heightened, uh, they're, they're wholly inadequate for really interfacing with the world. I remember seeing a, an advert for deafblind children not so long with a, with a young lad on the advert, and they're using a fan on his face, and he's feeling the, the, the wind blowing on his skin as a sort of sensory bit of sensory input. But even when these people can communicate, sometimes it's very difficult to communicate with someone who's been deafblind since birth. I mean, how do you explain red to someone who has never seen Same anything? Color, yeah. Or how do you explain... Um, music, you know, or birdsong to someone who's never heard a thing. I don't, I don't know, because it might not be living in darkness, because often I think there are lots and lots of colour. They're not colour representing what's in front of you, but it's not a blackness. It could be quite a distracting oh, like kaleidoscope of all sorts of colours. But also, um, so I've worked with blind people uh, quite a bit, and they appear to cope very well with all concepts of, of physical things and that they've learned to anyway and operate on a level just like anyone else I found. Well I used to work with a deaf lady who used to tell me about her favourite bands and I said well how do you know and she said because I, I can feel the music even if I can't see it. I mean she, she absolutely loved anything by Genesis because Phil Collins has got a very distinctive drum <laughs> feel. So she knew any song that Phil Collins, even if it was a song by another artist, she knew that Phil Collins had guested as the drummer on that just from the drum feel of putting a hand on the speaker. Well, there you go. So it's a a silver lining to every cloud. Yeah, different kind of <laughs> <laughs> different kind of appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, I was interested in the the signing because it's you know it's oh, touch, touch signing. signing yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all just done with the touch of hands, um, and that's quite extraordinary, really. Um, uh, that people are actually able to learn to communicate. Uh, complex subjects and issues simply by the touch of fingers. That's the end of part one, part two coming up.